Um, Pastor Matt's been leading us through uh, 1 Peter, and last week we finished chapter 2 of that book. Uh, we're going to take a break from uh, 1 Peter Day and instead open our Bibles to Acts uh, chapter 8. I've been teaching through this in my weekly study down at the Christian Aid Center, um, and I wanted to go a little bit more deep into this section than I was able to when I first taught it. Um, the study I teach down there is, is more open questions and discussion, and here I get to have a little bit more of an iron fist on the microphone. So, <clears throat> uh, We're going to look at the first eight verses uh, of this chapter today, and it's really broken up into two separate parts, um, and all of that is kind of the aftermath of what happened in, in chapter 7. And we're going to consider why bad things happen as part of God's plan and why we should be happy all the same. Um, I'm going to read from the NASB translation this morning, so your NIV or, or something else may differ a little bit in its, in its wording. So this is uh, verses 1 through 8 of chapter 8 of Acts. Uh, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death, and on that day a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him, but Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women, he would put them in prison. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. The crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice, and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was much rejoicing in that city. Some translations say the city was full of joy. <clears throat> uh, I noticed this morning, um, as I often do, that the music tied in really well with the message. That's not accidental. Um, when we're able to give the music leaders enough time to know what we're teaching on, uh, they do a really tremendous job of choosing songs that really reemphasize the points in the, in the text. And I was struck by one of the words in that song that uh, I don't know if we played in a long, long time, um, talking about the enemy... Uh, tempting with guilt. I'm sure I'm not the only one who has felt depressed or guilty or sad because you felt like you put a crimp in God's plan, right? Like you got in the way or messed something up and uh, now uh, the plan is screwed up. Um, the reality is that you can't do that because God's plan doesn't have crimps. It's perfect. Um, our plans have crimps. Um, I put a big crimp in a plan yesterday. Um, as you know, the school here had their big fundraising gala on Friday night, and uh, they had decked out the gymnasium. It looked fantastic, and part of that decoration is they bring in a bunch of live trees, or about a dozen of them. And as you see the trees around the sanctuary this morning, these are the same ones that they use. We, uh, we've appropriated them. <coughs> the process for that is that a few days ago, I went out in the gym with Heather Ho, and we, uh, we looked at some of the trees, and, and we put labels on the one that, that CCF was going to bring in here, um, our six trees to fit in the sanctuary. And then I'm, we were walking past one tree, and she said, you can take anything, you just can't take that tree, okay? That's the one that Keala and I are going to put in our house. You can see where their story is going. <laughs> um, so we put this big label on it that said, this is the hose tree, do not touch. Very different from the ones that say CCF. I, I can read. Um, so yesterday, we're up here, we're dressing up the sanctuary, and uh, a lot of the trees are too tall to fit in here because they were in the gym, and so I, I took my saws all out, and I'm, you know, I'm chopping them down so they fit, and you know, those ones just barely made it. Um, and we got all these trees pulled in here to put in the stands, and I realized that there are not six trees in here. There are seven trees in here. And sure enough, about 10 minutes later, Heather and Keala show up to get their Christmas tree, and they go out in the gym, 
And instead of this big, majestic, beautiful tree that they're going to put in their foyer and, and welcome their kids home from college with, there's about a two-foot-tall stump in the tree stand. Um, all that to say that our plans are fallible. I had clear directions, very specific instructions, easy to follow, and I still managed to screw it up. But that's not how it is with God's plan, is it? We don't screw up his plan, right? Because he expects and knows our screw-ups. That's part of the whole, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us thing. He didn't wait for us to be perfect and worthy of saving before he saved us. And perhaps the most profound example of that is the man named Saul. So verse 1 here says, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. What we're witnessing here is aftermath. There's a very big story, literally a huge chapter of Acts, uh, chapter 7, that precedes verse 1, where we get to hear that Saul approves of their killing him, which should make you stop and immediately say, what is going on? Who is Saul? Who's being killed? Who's doing the killing? How did they do it? Why did they do it? Why does Saul approve? There's as many questions about that one verse as there are words in the sentence. So let's briefly cover the events of chapter 7 and get caught up. Um, Stephen, who is uh, one of the seven men that the church uh, body chose and was prayed over by the apostles to help uh, administrate some church matters after the church was having some, some struggle taking care of things, uh, Stephen's arrested and he's brought before the high court in Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin. And the men on this council, these guys are highly regarded men. They're scholars, they're lawmakers, they're priests. And they ask Stephen if the charges against him are true. Very simple question. And the charges they're talking about, which are, are brought by false accusers, by the way, there's four of them. Uh, he's been accused of blasphemy against Moses, against God, against the holy place or the temple, and the law. And Stephen spends the bulk of chapter 7 addressing each one of those charges, reiterating the history of the Israelites and the Jewish people, and showing these learned scholars how throughout history they, in fact, and their predecessors in leadership have committed each of the crimes that he's on trial for. And as you can imagine, this doesn't go over well. At the end of his uh, uh, exhortation in, in verse 51 of chapter 7, he says, he turns things completely around on the Sanhedrin, and he says, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did, and that's the last straw. The Jewish court, these guys who are dignified, right, learned, powerful men, they turn into animals, gnashing their teeth and, and growling and shouting and covering their ears, and they, they toss him off a cliff and they start stoning him. So that's the context in which we get to uh, verse 1 of chapter 8, which says that Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. So the context here is that things are terrifying and the believers are running scared, right? Well, not exactly. Um, it's not that the context for chapter 8 is that uh, the Jewish leaders are, uh, and people of faith there were bloodthirsty animals, uh, at the devoutness of Christians, though it was true. The context is not that the persecution is about to begin, and the context is not that it's going to be so bad they should all be dismayed. The context, actually, for chapter 8 is that Stephen, as he is being stoned to death, sees the glory of God and shouts out his last words, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. That's the context in which we need to look at chapter 8 of Acts. Not that the Jews are shepherding their swords, so to speak, but that Christians are, in fact, actually practicing what Christ taught and exemplified forgiveness and righteousness, even unto death. 
because in that context, it's really no surprise whatsoever that these exiles, these persecuted believers, as they're being persecuted and driven out of their homes, would be preaching the gospel everywhere they go because they're not afraid. They haven't been frightened off by what happened to Stephen. They're encouraged by what happened in Stephen via the Holy Spirit because it's something they also have felt something that gives them, too, the fearlessness and the fortitude and the obedience to share the gospel, even as they're being hunted down by Saul and his ilk. Now, this Saul, of course, who's mentioned uh, late in chapter 7 before, is the one and the same Saul, obviously, who later uh, has that famous calling on the Damascus Road and is renamed Paul and becomes an apostle by the will of God, he says, in his introduction to letters, and writes uh, more than a dozen epistles that we have uh, in our Bibles before us. This Saul is not just standing idly by watching this happen. It says he's in hearty agreement, which is kind of a jovial way of saying he was really into it. He's excited. He's actively enabling these guys who are, they're they're throwing rocks at somebody to die. You understand that? And he's excited for that. We see at the end of chapter 7 that the men who were stoning Stephen are laying their coats at the feet of Saul so they can loosen their arms up to throw better. Anybody who's played baseball, you know that you can't throw with a coat on, right? You gotta loosen up your shoulders so you can, you, can, you can fall through and hit your target, right? Except the target in this case is Stephen's body. It's kind of disturbing when you think about it. And Saul's the one saying, give me your coats, I'll take care of them while you guys go loosen up. Go do a bullpen session and get ready to go in there. So he enables them to do this despicable deed, okay? And when their deed is done, we get to verse two, where it says, some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. The significance of this, there's a few things. One is that Stephen wasn't forgotten. This is important. The believers didn't see what happened to him and then freak out and run away. Okay, it says devout men took care of his body respectfully, thoughtfully, and time-consumingly. This is not a quick process. Okay, they had just watched an angry mob And not just any angry mob, but a powerful and influential angry mob of people who were supposed to be leaders murder Stephen for speaking the truth about his faith. And they they gather up his body and they take care of it and they bury him. Uh, This phrase, devout men, is is a little bit generic. It's not like a specific group of people in Jerusalem. Uh, But we know from chapter 2 of Acts that um, devout men describes some of those Jews who had come to Jerusalem uh, for the Feast of Pentecost, Jews who were dedicated to their faith, Uh, They take it seriously, and also the commitment of periodic pilgrimage that goes with that. These aren't just random people who don't want to see a decaying corpse and they're bothered by the smell. This is not a cleanup crew. These are men who care about God, who care about their religion, and they show their care also for Stephen. Now, it may be because they're also believers in Jesus, though it doesn't say specifically that, but if nothing else, they are people who understand what it means to be serious about one's faith. Jew or Christian or otherwise. And probably they'd never seen anyone as serious about his faith as Stephen was. That he was willing to stand up before the whole Sanhedrin council and declare them stiff-necked sinners and then endure stoning all the while proclaiming the glory of God and asking God to forgive the men who were throwing the rocks at him. They'd never seen anything like that unless, of course, they'd been there for the crucifixion of Christ, in which case they'd seen almost exactly the same thing. And they recognize, maybe from the mirror of Christ's attitude, the incredible depth and the sincerity and the genuineness of Stephen's faith. So the least they can do is take the time to care for his remains. And they do so while making loud lamentation over him. It means to to, to beat your, your breast in grief. This is Zechariah 12, verse 10, which says, this is prophecy where it says, I will pour out on the house of David 
and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. There's a picture of Christ there. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him, the bitter weeping as over a firstborn. It's that kind of grief that devout man had for Stephen after he's stoned to death. It's that kind of grief that Stephen's commitment to the gospel inspires in these devout men. But there's another devout man in Jerusalem who is very much committed to his understanding of God and truth, and a man who's very well educated and very well respected and very well connected, and that's Saul. Verse 3 tells us more about him and what he did because of that. It says, but Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and drawing off men and women, he would put them in prison. Here's a question for you, church. If God is good, why would he allow suffering? Okay, we've all heard that, right? It's one of the handful of kind of basic common complaints that people use when they want to attack Christianity instead of understand it because they think they can, they can logically undermine it somehow. Um, but it's also a question that many genuine believers struggle with. I've asked it. I'm sure a lot of you have. Maybe not so many words. My kids have asked it. Um, it's a question I'm not going to answer, um, obviously, because I think the whole, idea, the whole idea behind the question is kind of silly. Um, it presupposes that my personal comfort is an accurate microcosm of the greater whole. In other words, the question is really asking, if God is good, how can he allow me, or someone I know, or these particular people, or a person in this hypothetical circumstance, to suffer? It's asking, if God is good, why isn't he always good to me, right? Doesn't something bad happening to me negate the whole of God's goodness? And then, when we get that far, we begin to see the selfishness, or at the very least, the uh, short-sighted ignorance of the question itself. There are a lot of stories about building our lives upon the rock of Christ, that he's our foundation. Uh, And we do that so that when storms come, we'll be able to bear them. But that doesn't mean we don't lose some shingles in the process. So if we're going to wonder why God allows something bad to happen, the death of Stephen, say, and we're also going to presuppose that God is logical, because that's a predicate for the question, otherwise the question doesn't make sense, then the only conclusion we're able to draw is that God is better served by that bad thing happening than he is by that bad thing not happening, which means that God is somehow better served by Stephen's death than by Stephen's not death. So the logical thing then to do is to puzzle out why. What glory does God gain by Stephen's death that he wouldn't have gotten otherwise? And Luke, as he writes this part of Acts, uh, slowly explains very clearly what glory God gains. And like many of the bits of poor judgment that infect our lives, uh, this idea that God should always be nice to me all the time or else he's not nice at all is rooted in a lack of perspective. The whole thing can be good without having every single individual part of it feeling good. I would say that I've had a good life. Even though I, I hurt my knees playing football, I've had girlfriends break up with me, I've been punched, I've had several really awful bouts of the flu, I've had imperfect relationships, I've had speeding tickets, um, I've had my house flooded, I lost a baby... And yet, I wouldn't hesitate to say that my life is good. It's like you look at the Christmas tree over here and, and deny that it's green because you can, see there's, you can see some of the trunk and it's kind of brown in there. Or the fact that I drive a, a white car, but the tires are black, therefore it's not white. Right? To ask why God allows suffering if he's good is to be completely blind to the fact that the world doesn't resolve, resolve around oneself, that there's a greater context than what's happening to any given person or group of people. So neither does the church revolve around one member, not even the pastor, but around Jesus, right? And it's because of that tight focus that Saul leverages his knowledge and his authority, and he goes after believers. 
He goes after them with a ferociousness that is a little bit scary. Saul ravaged the church, it says. He made havoc of the church, another translation says. What I like better, havoc is a scary word. Whatever the translation, the, the Greek is the, is the same there, and it's only used in that spot, right? So I didn't get to, to, to geek out at a bunch of other spots in Scripture to see what the full meaning of the word is, so I'll do that next time. Um, but the word itself refers to wild behavior, uh, something animalistic, brutal, ripping and tearing and shredding. It's like a wolf at the kill. Um, and you'd have to be like that, have that kind of attitude to do what he did, which is going into homes and dragging out men and women and putting them into jail and even into death. Saul prosecuted people to death, not just to jail. In Acts 22, verses 4 and 5, Paul said, I persecuted this way, Christianity, to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women, as also the high priest bears me witness, and all the council of the elders, from whom I also received letters to the brethren, and went to Damascus to bring in chains even those who were there to Jerusalem to be punished. He was willing to go to Damascus. That's a long walk from Jerusalem, by the way. That's how angry and frustrated and, 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 and pardon my language, hell-bent on destroying Christianity Saul was. And in chapter 26, verse 10, Paul says, This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And Saul took aim at both men and women. This is, can also be translated husbands and wives. And this is important because in that culture, the, the man, the husband, he's the head of the household, right? Not just for tax purposes, but he's the one responsible for the family's faith. You can look at um, Paul and Silas on their missionary journey uh, into Europe when they, they get locked up and they pray and the, the doors of the prison are opened. This is in Acts 16. And the jailer falls down before Paul and Silas and he asks them how he can be saved. And they respond that he needs to believe in Jesus and that he and his household will be saved. And they go to his house and his whole, his whole family <clears throat> his whole household is described as being saved. Um, so Paul's not concerned about disrupting family lives. He wants this Jesus thing squelched, and he wants it done now. He doesn't care how he has to get it done. <clears throat> he's not just the men he's after. He's after anyone who professes Christ. And it, it probably seemed, at least for a bit, from his perspective, that it was working. But the gospel is a powerful thing, and it doesn't always go out in spite of persecution, but often because of it. It's part of the foundation of the, of the book of Acts that we've that I have been teaching through, I should say, the story of the church growing because of persecution. It happens in, in chapter 4, uh, verse 4, chapter 4, verse 32, chapter 5, verse 14, chapter 5, verse 42 through 6, 1, and Acts chapter 6, and, and other places that we get on through uh, the book of Acts. So this is a normal thing for persecution to be used to further the gospel. Our context in our, in our modern lives is that, thinking of persecution, is that it's something to overcome. Uh, that it won't stop the spread of the gospel, and that, that's true, but Acts is filled with examples not of persecution being overcome by the church, but of persecution being used by God to spread his gospel and to build his church. So God, in his infinite wisdom, he entrusted the gospel to men, and men, in case you haven't noticed, can be kind of thick-headed. Um, the corollary to my story about the tree is that Anna told me, I don't think that's our tree, uh, about two minutes before I cut it in half. <clears throat> men can be thick-headed, complacent, lazy, self-interested. Sometimes we need a little bit of um, encouragement. And the believers got this encouragement in the form of persecution. But they didn't whine and moan about it. 
They didn't create little support groups and, and where they got together and complained about how mean non-believers were being to them. They didn't go arm themselves so they could start an uprising against the authorities. They didn't go looking for persecution. What did they do? They preached the word. We don't have to look for persecution, church, because if we make a show of our faith, we're not any different from the Pharisees that Jesus condemned for shouting on the street corners. The persecution will come, and if we're persecuted for our faith, then we'll have an opportunity to bring glory to God. But we can't be persecuted for something that nobody can see. Otherwise, how would they know to persecute? It's only if our faithfulness is a danger, a risk, a threat to the status quo and to the complacency and the earthly order of the world that it becomes worth anybody's time to persecute. So we fill our hearts with faith so that it may, see, may be seen and, and threaten the complacency of the world. And then we do verse four. It says, therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. It sounds so simple. <clears throat> Saul probably expected, based on his knowledge of uh, other religious uprisings, that some severe pressure on these guys would cripple the, the whole Jesus movement. Or at the very least, it would, it would drive them out of Jewish lands and it wouldn't be their problem anymore. Well, he certainly drove them out of Jewish lands, but they didn't cease to be a problem for him because they didn't just run away and hide. They aren't fleeing, they're going. And they're going to preach. They're, they're fulfilling, probably inadvertently, at least in the moment they're thinking of it, what Jesus told them they would do in chapter 1, verse 8, to start in Jerusalem and then to all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. <clears throat> we shouldn't brush this off, though, as I'm just being a bunch of oblivious, happy-go-lucky, wandering minstrels are not just uh, wandering around uh, making a show of things. This is not a, a new thing or a new situation for them to have been in. Um, this is a very serious business. They know all about exile, and they know about scattering. The word here is, is the one for diaspora, and, and they all know about the Assyrian exile um, the one involving Samaria that we're going to talk about in just a minute. And, and they know about the, the Babylonian captivity at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar that comes a, a century and a bit after that. And there's, there's large groups of Jews in, in Egypt and in Crete and in Cyrene and even in, in Rome. There's Jews all over the place. They're spread out all over. They're familiar with scattering. And there's more to come in this first century A.D. And we don't get a lot of information yet about these specific scattered people, um, but we see the very simple and profound act that as they scatter, they share the gospel. They don't scatter, and then once they've settled in somewhere and become comfortable, they decide it's okay to proclaim the gospel. It says they went about preaching the word. Saul went about hunting Christians, and Christians went about sharing the gospel. And I don't know how many of you, like me, have uh, thought that you would go ahead and evangelize or maybe even uh, go on a missionary trip or something or take the gospel to, to Africa or even to your Thanksgiving table if just you were comfortable enough and you were at a place in your life where it was convenient for you. But the truth is that it's easy to grow complacent when we're comfortable, when nothing forces our hands. So if you stop to think, what would the church have looked like if this persecution hadn't come? What would have happened if Stephen hadn't been murdered and Saul hadn't taken up his authority and, and arms? Would the church have just stayed in Jerusalem comfortably? These people needed to be scattered. People were, were, they were coming into Jerusalem and they were learning about Jesus, um, but that's a one-way communication chain. And it's going to be very difficult for them to reach the whole world if the whole world has to come into Jerusalem to learn about Jesus. So why does God allow suffering? Because it serves his purpose 
Why does God allow the murder of a gracious and caring believer and the persecution of countless other followers? Because it serves his purpose. And that purpose is reflected in Acts 1.8. Jesus told them they'd be witnesses, and he used that word meaning what witnesses, witnesses means, which is martyr, right? It's, it's, it's martus. <clears throat> He's not making a prediction. This isn't a guess that Jesus is making. He makes a statement. He tells them this is going to happen. He says, y'all are going to be martyrs in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And sure enough, here they are, martyr witnessing in Judea and Samaria. You remember what, what Pastor Matt's been teaching out of First Peter? Um, one of the things from a couple weeks ago is that we're priesthood. Believers are a priesthood, and a priesthood shares its faith. Does it not? That's what's going on here. You might ask why the apostles were not scattered, backing up to verse 1, as it very specifically says they were not. For some reason, they remained in Jerusalem while everybody else um, scattered about. There's a couple reasons for this that I can see in Scripture. One is that they, they maintain a training ground there in Jerusalem, uh, raising up people to spread the word. They, they send Peter and John to visit Philip in Samaria uh, in verse 14. They send Barnabas to Antioch in chapter 11. Jerusalem is sort of this, this home base, this hub, which makes total sense. But it also shows us, the fact that they remained there, that the ch- church in Jerusalem was not abandoned. They didn't run scared. The persecution of the church did not uproot the church. It remained, founded by the apostles and taught by them and as an area of training and support. And they were faithful even though the persecution, no doubt, was worst and most strong right there in their city, in their home church. They don't stay because it's easy, but because it's important. There are still people in Jerusalem to reach with the gospel. There are still people coming to Jerusalem to hear about Jesus. There are unsaved people, even those who are still persecuting them. And so there's work to begin in preaching and equipping, and so the church stays there too. That's an important facet of this scattering. It's not that the church totally left. It's that it grew from there. And as for those who were scattered, they had to leave a lot of stuff behind. You know, they, they, they had the clothes on their backs, maybe some possessions if they had a donkey or something to carry him, um, maybe some money they had lying around. But a lot of these people didn't have a lot of notice before the, uh, Saul and his brigade came through their doors. So they were dependent missionaries. They're, they're poor. A lot of them are destitute. They're, they're ripped away from their comfort. And they end up doing exactly what, uh, what Jesus said his followers have to do. They have to give up everything, leave everything, and follow me. And fortunately, they have Jesus as their comforter. 2 Corinthians 1.3 calls God the God of comfort who comforts us in our troubles. In John 14.18, he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And in Romans 15.5, it reminds us that God is the one who gives endurance and encouragement. So God is the great comforter. But when do you need to be comforted? It's not when you're comfortable already. It's when you're in discomfort, when you've been uprooted. It's in our pain and our suffering that he's most clearly known and made known. And Philip, too, is in the midst of struggle and strife. And Philip is in the aftermath of probably the most difficult day he'd ever faced. Uh, But it doesn't prevent him from doing his job, as we see in verse 5. It says, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. Philip's a name we've heard before in Acts Um, Back in chapter 6, he's one of the ones who, along with Stephen, is chosen to help solve some issues when there's some strife among who's getting bread and whatnot. Philip obviously knew Stephen well. They were chosen together to serve the church in in a deacon kind of role, and no doubt he was devastated over what happened to him. He may have even witnessed it, seen it happen. So, yeah, he's having a rough day. A day when his faith meant he had to depart from his home 
and his friends and his family and his church body, everyone he knew, and go into Samaria of all places. And he did it not sulking, but preaching. When I think about where I am now, where I'm asked to step into the role of, of assistant pastor, I, I'm scared of it, but I'm also calm because I trust in God for that provision. Not because I'm like Philip, but because God is still like God. All right? God allowed, he made the church to be uncomfortable, distraught, in order to push it out to the next part of its development. So I feel that same push. It's time to go. Not because I'm ready, but because it's God's plan and my job is just to obey. So Philip does, and he goes to Samaria, which is a no-go zone for Jews. Samaria is essentially what used to be the northern half of the kingdom. Um, let me throw that map up on there. Uh, a little bit small, but you see Samaria in the green, kind of right in the smack dab in the middle. Um, Israel, of course, used to be a, a, a larger kingdom, and it was split in two. There's a whole bunch of history there I'm not going to cover th- this morning. Basically, in the, um, later on in the 8th century B.C., the Assyrians, Assyrians came in, and they, they kidnapped and killed and drove out pretty much everyone who was of any kind of standing in the northern half of, of the kingdom of Israel. And then they left basically the, the poor and lower-class Jews there, and then outsiders and, and, and pirates and things and non-Jews, Gentiles, were brought in, and they intermarried with the Jews who were left behind. And so it became a place where there was a Jewish heritage, but it was a departure from the sort of true Jewish bloodline. <clears throat> and there's animosity between the northern and southern parts, what is Samaria now and what is Judea now in the south. And in the book of John, chapter 4, verse 9, it tells us parenthetically that, that Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, none. Jesus uses a Samaritan to drive home his point in Luke 10 about the serious misunderstanding of what a neighbor is with that story of the, the good Samaritan. And even, even his own disciples were disparaging of Samaritans. When Jesus sends his advance team ahead of him uh, into Samaria in Luke chapter 9, and the Samaritans, they, they rebuff their advances, and James and John come back to Jesus, and they say, hey, would you like us to rain down fire from heaven on those Samaritans? They're, they're ready and willing to do that. Such is the animosity there. These Samaritans, were, were, they're sort of considered half-breeds by the Jews, right? Uh, and they had a different form of worship from the Jews proper, and they had kind of mixed in idols and, and other bits and pieces and influences from other cultures over time. And obviously this is really displeasing to Jews who are intent on keeping things pure. So there's some bad blood there. And yet it's in that same chapter 4 of John's Gospel where Jesus has a long conversation with a Samaritan woman at the well, something his disciples are, are sh- literally shocked to witness. And in that conversation, he tells her that he's the Messiah. And she's the first person he tells that to. He picks somebody from Samaria, a woman even, a woman who's had five husbands even, as a person to share his true identity with first. So this is just one of the instances where, where Jesus uses the Samaritans to show how his kingdom and his love and his law differ from the stuff that men have been building on earth. <clears throat> so on the one hand, it's a little bit crazy that Philip's going to go into Samaria and start preaching the gospel when typically a Jew would look at Samaria with just disdain on their face. Um, And on the other hand, it seems to fit perfectly with Jesus' habit of breaking down assumptions and stereotypes. And maybe most importantly, it's a clear fulfillment of Acts 1-8, which I'm actually going to read to you now. What Jesus said there in Acts 1-8, his last words before he ascended to heaven, he told his apostles, he said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. There's a, there's a clear three-level expression of the gospel there. Jerusalem first, and then Judea and Samaria, and then the rest of the world. 
Well, just before the time of our section of scripture today, there was another court session with the Sanhedrin where they were trying to squelch this Jesus movement before it got too big. Back in chapter five, the apostles were arrested again for preaching about Jesus, and they show up in front of the council, and the high priest says something very interesting. He says in Acts chapter five, verse 28, he says, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. They filled Jerusalem with their teaching, and it's true. Now, the high priest means this as a kind of accusation, as an insult, but it's really a huge compliment. In a matter of weeks, this church has grown from about 120 people hiding in a, in a dark room in a, a church of tens of thousands of believers. The gospel is spreading very quickly, and Jerusalem is filled with it. So they've sort of checked box number one in Acts 1.8, or at least they've got it well started. The next part of Jesus' statement was into all Judea and Samaria, and that's precisely what verse one of our section today told us. And we know that devout men have come into Jerusalem for the festival, for Pentecost, and they've been wrapped up in this early church movement, and people, some of them have gone home, and they're sharing the gospel there, and, and things are spreading, and now it's Samaria's turn. Jesus' prophecy is coming perfectly true. Imagine that. So we can peek ahead to chapter 11 even, and, and we see there that the gospel is going out to great distances. Uh, in Acts chapter 11, verse 19, says that believers are scattered by the persecution went to faraway places like Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. These are hundreds of miles away from Jerusalem. Oh, they're, they're overseas, they're, they're across deserts. This is not an easy trek that the gospel is taking. And it happens in a very, very short period of time. This whole thing is planned, it's ordained, it's thoughtful, it's careful, and it's part of God's plan that, yes, has a little bit of pain in it too. So anyway, it's in this place, in Samaria, in this kind of Jewish no-fly zone, this place that is hostile and unwelcome to be in as a Jew, yet clearly part of the plan of the gospel, that Philip starts his work as Philip the Evangelist, as he comes to be known later. He goes down to the city of Samaria, proclaiming the Christ to them. That, that word there is, is proclaiming, is keruso. It means to preach. It means to be like a herald, to shout out loudly, to make clearly known. It's the word that gets used of John the Baptist when he's preaching, and John was no meek preacher. And it's the word used of Jesus when he traveled into synagogues proclaiming the gospel. Philip's not starting an underground church. He's boldly sharing the gospel, despite the fact that he's an outlaw for doing so and has an immediate impact on people, as we see in verses 6 and 7. The crowds, with one accord, were giving attention to what was said by Philip, as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them shouting with a loud voice, and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. The crowds were paying attention as they heard and saw the signs. What signs? Because we've talked a little bit in the last year here about um, the apostolic age and about miracles and such, and I want to be clear here that it wasn't just anybody walking around doing miracles on, uh, on people who were, who were sick. But some people were, the apostles generally and, and Peter specifically, but always in the power of Jesus' name. That's very important. They weren't wandering around with magic hands saying, you're healed and you're healed. You get a new car. No, it's, it's the power of Jesus that does the actual healing and such. But Jesus imbued people with that power. At the end of the Gospel of Mark, uh, Jesus meets with uh, the, the 11 remaining apostles uh, in Mark 16, 17, and he tells them, these signs will accompany those who have believed. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak with tongues. They will pick up serpents. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. 
And in Luke 10, Jesus sends out his 70, or his 72, depending on your translation, his missionaries to, to prepare the way before him as he's, he's ready to start traveling down toward Jerusalem. And when those 70 come back, they give this report to, to, uh, to Jesus in Luke chapter 10, verse 17. It says, the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. In your name is the key phrase there. So Philip is in Samaria, and he's doing the same kind of things that Stephen was also doing in chapter 6, verse 8. You can go back and look at that a little bit later. People are being healed. Unclean spirits are being expelled. And these spirits aren't exactly willing. They're making a, it says they were coming out of them shouting with a loud voice. We see that in, in Mark chapter 1, where Jesus uh, is beginning his ministry and goes into Capernaum. He has this exchange with a demon in Mark chapter 1, verses 23 to 26. It says, Just then there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet, and come out of him. Throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. These unclean spirits don't go quietly. They have no authority to overcome Jesus' demands of them to leave, but they sure make a scene of it. So many unclean spirits are coming out of people in Samaria at the authority of Jesus' name and in the presence of Philip. I don't want to move past that scene in Mark without pointing out something important, which is that there's no confusion on the demon's part about who Jesus is. There is absolute clarity from a spiritual standpoint that Jesus is the Holy One of God. And it knows, the demon does, that Jesus has both power and authority to destroy it if he so desires. The unclean spirits still now in Samaria, they know the same thing. Even after Jesus' death, they still recognize his power and authority in his name, and they react to it just as if Jesus was standing there in front of them himself. So this is one way that, that demons are a little bit more tuned to the uh, plan of God than, than men are, especially the Sanhedrin Council and, and Saul and his merry band of of anti-Christian marauders, they're keen on wiping out the physical evidence of Jesus and his teachings. They assume that attacking the physical movement will put a stop to the spiritual movement because that's what has happened before with teachers and, and rebels who have come into Jerusalem. And if you go back to the end of chapter five, you can read about Gamaliel and a couple mentions of people who after they die, their movements dispersed. And they're hoping for the same thing to happen here. Just get rid of the people who are committed and knowledgeable and the whole thing should just fall apart eventually. But what they don't understand that the demons do is that Christ's power was not just in his body. And even though he is dead, he's not powerless. In fact, he is risen as Stephen sees and, and calls out to them as he's being stoned to death. He sees Jesus at the right hand of God the Father. And because Jesus dies and arises again, he's actually more powerful now because he's conquered death and those who serve it. He says in Revelation 1.18 that he holds the the, the keys to death in Hades. And in 2 Timothy 1, verse 10, and, and Hebrews 2, verse 14, we see that uh, Jesus, <coughs> excuse me, that he holds power over death now, that he has broken the chains. Again, another tie-in with the music. This is not accidental. Jesus' authority and power didn't dissipate when he died, like those rebels and those uprisers who came before him in Jerusalem. His power was magnified when he conquered death and took his place at the right hand of God. And now this power is being manifest in Samaria of all places, testifying to the power and the truth of his gospel that Philip faithfully proclaims. And they make people sit up and pay attention. It says people had one accord in paying attention to what Philip was saying. There's a kind of an excited unity here, like we're going to have when we go out and eat. We're all going to be of one mind there. 
And when we eventually come back to look more at chapter eight, uh, some, some other time when I get to preach, <coughs> we'll see how that groupthink approach causes some problems in Samaria. But for now, we'll just be glad that they're on the right path this time and that it produces in them what verse eight says, joy. So there was much rejoicing in that city. The gospel that Philip shares brings joy. You think Philip left out the part where he was on the run, uh, chased out of Jerusalem by bloodthirsty persecutors? I think he probably had to explain to the Samaritans why he was there. I think they knew his past and what was happening to believers in Jerusalem at the hands of Saul. And yet, despite knowing that that rage was in Jerusalem against the Christians, still, there was joy in this city in Samaria. As Matt and Arthur and Nick and I have been treading through the life of David um, on Tuesday mornings, we've been balancing between the books and the Psalms to see the connections of uh, when things were written and, and, and when and why. And there's, there's honestly, there's a surprising amount of joy in the Psalms that are written in really difficult times. It's almost like it amplifies that joy. It says, they say things like rejoice and serve the Lord with gladness and let Israel be glad and even the earth rejoices. Paul writes about it frequently too. And he commands believers to rejoice in God and, and the hope that is in him alone. And as we look around at the trappings of this season as we get into December here, the time of year when our, our culture at least still kind of nods vaguely in the direction of Christ and a very small acknowledgement, we see or at least hear about joy abounding, references to joy all over the place. The news the angel brings regarding Christ's birth is what? Luke chapter 2. It says, tidings of great joy, which shall be for all people. But this joy is not just to be seasonal, church, but permanent. It's not a worldly joy over beautiful trees or, or pretty lights or hot chocolate or, or, or family gatherings or presents or parades. But it's the kind of joy that's founded on Christ and it only comes through him that we see like in Isaiah chapter 61. This is verse 10 and 11 of Isaiah 61. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts and as a garden causes the things sown in it to spring up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all nations. There's so much joy, an entire city filled with joy in a place that the Jews have been at best ignoring and at worst fighting against. An entire city filled with joy because one scattered believer obediently and faithfully shared the gospel there. Now think about how many believers were scattered. They had to leave Jerusalem. They needed a kick in the pants. And maybe they weren't all as thoughtful and, and eloqu eloquent and, and uh, respected as Philip, but they were all scattered and they preached wherever they went. They spread the gospel. Yes, it was awful and traumatic and horrific and hard to swallow when Stephen was stoned, but what was accomplished through it? Was the whole sum of the effort for good or for bad? Was the balance of God's plan bent toward badness or goodness? And did the pain for some people prevent the good that was meant for all? When we're in difficult circumstances, even though most of us will never face anything like what they were facing in Jerusalem at the hands of Saul. We need to remember and land on a phrase that Pastor Matt has just recently taught us about in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8. 
And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Because you believe in him, you greatly rejoice. If you believe in him, you have incredible joy in your heart that is beyond measure. And we are clothed with garments of salvation and wrapped in a robe of righteousness that the world, no matter what its persecution, whatever its attempts, cannot take away. Joy that is full of glory, that results in the kind of loving commitment to do things like preach the gospel in what feels like enemy lands, even as you're being persecuted for it. So church, as we, as we enter neck deep into Christmas season, I urge you, brothers and sisters, not to let the cultural narrative of Jesus be enough for you. I urge you not to be complacent, and most of all, I, I urge you to be uncomfortable with how our shopping malls describe our Savior. I urge you to fill in the gaps, to correct the misinformation, to preach wherever you go with lives of righteousness, to rejoice in his truth and to make him known so that those you share him with could also experience that same joy that extends into eternity. We cannot fill the city with joy. We can share it with the gospel, or fill it with the gospel, excuse me, and with his teaching. And then we bow down before the might and the glory of God and we trust in him to be good. Father, I thank you for allowing us the pleasure and the richness of your word. It is profound, and I ask that you speak it into our hearts, Lord, better than I am able to with my lips. I know that you are mightier than any one of us. Your glory is visible in your word, in your plans, in your son, and in your church. We give our time over to you, Father, as we go now and rejoice in the bounty you've laid before us through the hands of, of those who've decorated and planned and cooked to share. Bless this food into our bodies so that we may be strengthened to go about proclaiming your gospel. And we ask that you remind us continually of the eternal and constant bend of the universe toward your glory. You amaze us, Father. Amen.